SideTrack is an ultra-portable USB monitor that attaches to the back of your laptop for a more productive workday, whether you are at home, at the office, in a coffee shop, or on the go. Anyone who works with two screens knows just how tedious multitasking and referencing documents can be on a laptop. SideTrack allows you to combine the portability of a laptop and the productivity of a dual monitor setup. Studies show that you are 24% more productive and can save four hours a week working with two screens. Imagine what you can accomplish with all that extra time. I seriously love the SideTrack portable monitor. I use it all the time. It's a must-have and super easy to use and set up. For 10% off, visit sidetrack.com slash discount slash greater than code. That's S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K dot com slash discount slash greater than code. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 158. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my friend Jamie Hampton. Thanks, John. And uh, I'm glad to be here with my friend Jacob Stobel. Hello, thanks. Our special guest this week is Ariel Kaplan. Ariel is a developer, speaker, and proud dad. In past stages of life, he has been a biologist, periodical editor, molecular animator, rabbinical student, stem cell donor, and award-winning amateur poet. Ariel currently works as a software engineer at Cloudinary, learning new things each day about building and scaling software and peopleware. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jacob. So I guess I am here with my friends, John and Jamie, and my new friend, Jacob. I'm Ariel, and uh, very excited to be here today. Well, today for you, it's this evening for me. We're on a little bit of a time zone difference, which always makes things lots of fun. Well, we're super glad to have you on the show. I'm super glad to be here. The question we always like to ask our guests first is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? So I would say that my superpower, and it's okay if you laugh, but I'm, I'm just going to own that. Um, my superpower is extreme irritability. What I, <laughs> so what I mean by that is basically the idea that I have, I would say, a very low tolerance for things that kind of seem off. And just to just to kind of make it clear what I'm talking about, so I I think it was mentioned in the bio I was a periodical editor for a few years. Um, that meant that I was able to notice all the small details in in the articles that I was editing. And it's the same thing in terms of of software and in terms of teams. So I tend to notice things about processes or code that could be better, and then I have this deep urge to fix them. Um, so I don't think that you would want a team of everybody like me because it would just be horrible to work with. I think it's good to have that with someone on your team, someone to kind of raise all those flags and uh, and try to point out where things could be a little bit better. How did I acquire it, I think, is uh, basically down to when you're younger, you are irritated by a lot of things, and I just never learned to not be bothered by them, <laughs> I guess. I don't know, I kind of feel like all of us have certain things that bother us more or less, and maybe I just have more of those things. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's what I would uh, summarize my superpower as. I have a question about it. You sure, just please. talked about examples of it in like code and programming. But like one thing I thought of when you first said it was like, do you find that you also have this superpower in other aspects of your life? Because my first response was like, oh, if you don't take like 
dumb bullshit from people. Like I do take dumb bullshit from people and I wish I, I wish I did less. Do you find that it, 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 uh, you experience it in that way also or no? I guess probably the way that I would, or the example I would point to is I spent some time being a uh, kind of a tech lead for a team and I noticed that there were a lot of elements of process that, again, that irritated me, that that could be improved. But kind of the, the, the wisdom that comes over the years, right? The, it's one thing to notice, but it's another thing to know how to apply it and when to speak up and when to kind of say, okay, well, this is not the right time to address it. And uh, I'm definitely not perfect about it, but that was actually a great learning experience for me to learn when to address these things and when to kind of let them go. But uh, it definitely helped me to be able to kind of notice the broad picture of, okay, so I'm, I'm walking in, like immediately I took notes. And actually in my current job, so one of the things that I did, and I wasn't, I wasn't actually even asked to do this, but I just thought it would be a really good idea, is that every day at the end of the day, I would uh, sit down and just write out all the things that happened today. And here's the things that I noticed, those things that were really good. And here's the things that, that I noticed that bothered me or that I thought could be improved or, or things that were just confusing uh, you know, maybe some notes to try to help the next person who has to be onboarded. Um, so it definitely applies to a lot of areas of life, right? It's not just about, you know, technical things like code or writing or things like that. It's also about the human interactions that we have every day and trying to make sure that you're aware of, of what's going on, um, which is a thing that, as, as I've learned over the years, right, you can, you can have many levels of awareness of what's going on. But, you know, beyond that, thinking about, okay, so what here is actionable and, uh, and how can I improve the situation? Yeah, sort of related to that, I was wondering, like, at what point did you figure out that that was your superpower versus just, I'm annoyed all the time? <laughs> it might have been when I was preparing for this podcast. <laughs> um, no, but the, but the the truth is, I mean, I, I, it's definitely something that I've noticed over the years, again, specifically in the in the context of uh, editing writing, right? Or, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways that this that this could could manifest itself, you know, elements of, of things being orderly or aesthetically pleasing. Um, I remember I was once part of a group that was organizing a, a social event that involved inviting a speaker. And there was like a, a gift basket for the speaker. And I just couldn't resist the urge. And I said, well, I think that we could arrange these fruits a little bit more nicely because like those are, those are just, just noticing all those things, kind of having that constant influx of things. So it's something that I've always known about myself. And again, it's also something that you kind of have to control, right? It can absolutely go too far. Um, and you have to make sure that you're not hurting other people and your desire to see things exactly as you want them. But again, it, it is, it is a good signal to have, right? It's like that spidey sense, right? Of like, oh, you know, something, something is a little bit off here and being aware of, of how you want to change it. I actually think that kind of relates to the thing that led to me, I wouldn't say meeting because I knew John from before, but uh, certainly to some degree developing a close relationship and with, uh, with, with Jamie as well. But I, I gave a talk not too long ago about, about children's books and the, the hidden messages in them and how that relates to the community of programmers and the hidden messages that we send each other. And again, it's, it's just about noticing these things and realizing like, oh, there's something that's a little bit off and, uh, and just, just kind of being, uh, let's say a little bit, a little bit bothered by the things that are that are there, and then knowing how to address them. So, you know, I don't want to regive the talk. Uh, I mean, I could totally regive the talk in the in the conference talk context. I don't want to give, regive the talk right here, so I'm not going to get too far into that. But yeah, I think it does it does relate to that as well. It strikes me that that sort of heightened awareness of the discomfort of certain arrangements of whether it's UI elements or code or fruits uh, or people like being able to be aware of when those things are subtly off is actually pretty powerful because be, you becoming aware of them means you can bring it to the team and make them aware of them 
rather than like think at least for me a lot of times those little things are just background noise they're like just a little bit of sand in your shirt that you don't really notice you don't really address but it's there just causing cognitive load as you're trying to filter it out trying you know causing friction on the team that no one's really talking about like being able to bring those into awareness and start a conversation is incredibly powerful I think this actually applies to accessibility as well. So, you know, most of us aren't naturally attuned to the to the accessibility needs of those who, let's say, don't possess certain abilities that we may have. So, for example, if you can see color just fine, or you know, you're, you have, uh, let's say, standard tricolor vision, and then you know, someone else doesn't have those, right? So you might not notice, like, oh, this is, you know, this design has a lot of red and green used to contrast things, right? So, so very basic things like that that for someone else like, are very, very obvious. But it's, it is actually possible to develop over time uh, a sensitivity to these things. Uh, I think another example, right, is alt tags and images, right? So if you've never experienced, like, using a screen reader to uh, look at a web page, you, you probably aren't as bothered as someone who uses it all the time. But it's also possible to kind of feel like, oh, there's something wrong about an image without an alt tag. And just kind of learning to be bothered by it, learning to notice it, even if it's not something that impacts your day-to-day uh, life. So I, I think that um, that's kind of the, the empathy element of it, I would say, is learning about things that irritate others and learning to be irritated by them uh, as well. I think there's also value in like pointedly irritating others on purpose to make a point, um, which I thought about when you're, I, I, one of my talks recently, I talk about the screen reader thing and I have a clip in it where I have like a video of a screen reader reading one of those tweets that has like the clapping hand emoji in between every word that people like to do. I ha- it's like a minute and a half clip. And when I was writing this talk, I was like, I can't make everyone listen to this for a whole minute and a half. And I was like, oh yeah, I can. And I think it was really effective because I like just awkwardly stared at the audience and like made everyone feel annoyed that they had to listen to it. <laughs> I was at that talk and that was a powerful moment. <laughs> Thank you. Not to toot my own horn about it, but I really like struggled with like, is it appropriate to put this in my talk? Very much so. Yeah, I, I had a screen reader moment yesterday where there, there was this sort of accessibility question that came up and there was sort of like a general consensus if you googled it that like oh yeah you need to do it this one way and i was just i had been thinking like oh you know it seems like for as a sighted person or as i guess i should say as a person who doesn't use a screen reader i'm often relying just sort of on by just sort of googling it and finding out like oh this is what you're supposed to do but i've never actually tried using a screen reader and i've been meaning to for a long time but like i spent probably an hour just teaching myself the basics of it, which was frustrating, but definitely worth it. Because like, I sort of got to this point where I wanted to just sort of experience it for myself and sort of have intuition as to why we do some of these things, as opposed to just sort of taking someone else's word for it. So actually at my at my previous company, um, this was after I left, but they instituted a practice, I think it was called No Keyboard Tuesdays. And basically, or sorry, No, no Mouse Mondays, maybe something like that. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the point was you could use a keyboard and you couldn't use the mouse. And so basically the point was to experience the site that you're working on, um, from a, from a 508 compliance perspective, right? For basically making sure that your site is accessible to people who don't have the ability to use the, the things that most people use to work with their computers. And, uh, it was really interesting how suddenly when they in their own work had to live with those disabilities effectively, 
and that was just a standard practice in the group, they, they started noticing these things a lot more and they started being bothered by these things because well, now this is part of my, my experience and I just, you know, I have to make sure that the, all these things are fixed. Also, like, semantics, so, like, things that are perfectly legitimate for a screenwriter, but if you actually try it out, um, you'll find, like, oh, the meaning is different um, or the meaning could be interpreted differently. And that, that's something you couldn't just know by Googling it. But you have to sort of realize that it, it's almost like you're creating something for almost two different media, like one for visual and one for something as something to be read out loud. And it's the same code. And I, I, I just, that really blows my mind. I'm, I'm really, this is a really interesting conversation. Do you have an example of that? I'm really curious. Yeah. Like, okay. So like I, I maintain some legacy code. And we found that for whatever reason, we had like a column that was in, or a form that was in two columns. And for whatever reason, the, uh, the column to the left, the second column appeared above the, the first. So semantically, as you tab through the form, you come through the second column. So you, you come through like some fields and then you get to the submit button before reaching fields that would be in the first column. You know what I mean? So. That that's something you would never know if, unless you just tried it out. I just want to point out. So I live in Israel, and so I have to work with a lot of Hebrew language websites just to you know get tasks done. You know, government websites and bank websites and things like that. And um, the tab order is totally messed up sometimes because all the fields are right to left, and the standard way that you know HTML works is everything is left to right. And it's interesting how sometimes their goal, it's very clear that their goal was we just want it to, you know, look the way that it was, you know, in the design mock-up. And sometimes their goal was, okay, there's like an order to things and we're going to have, you know, proper semantic HTML and we're going to control, you know, left and right with CSS and then tabbing is going to work properly. So that's just sort of an interesting, an interesting experience that I've had. You know, I, I don't have any particular disabilities in this, in this area and it's still like just irritating or like I'll click on a field, I'll be like, okay, so I tab around the page when I use the internet because it's just I don't want to use use my mouse all the time. And like I'll click on, I'll click on a field because I think that's the first field, and I'll just you know start tabbing around, and it's not the first field at all. And then I have to like figure out, okay, so oh, but then this field that I just filled in, now I have to actually just go back to a different field because that changes the options for this field, and it's super super irritating. So yeah, it's much easier to be irritated when it's something that impacts you personally. <laughs> Yeah, or if they have JavaScript that wipes out the field whenever you click or tab into it. <laughs> that made me think of something else, which is, and this isn't really about disability, or it's not about disability at all. But like, so for example, my my wife doesn't really like using hotkeys. She just prefers to use the mouse for pretty much everything. And it made me think of like, well, I use hotkeys a lot too. I try to use my keyboard wherever I can when I'm browsing. But um, lately, I've been trying to use my mouse more because I'm curious of like, what is the experience of someone who has to sort of push their mouse everywhere around the page? And they, you know, like, what would that feel like for them? And again, that's not about disability, but it, again, it's like we're talking about a potentially very different experience. And I'm just sort of sometimes I find myself curious, like, well, what is that? So then that it becomes a question of like, if you have no mouse Monday, should we have only mouse Tuesdays <laughs> or um I don't know, like, what are the different ways you can differentiate and sort of pretend to be different users at different times? I think that there's this uh, often cited statistic, and I don't remember what the numbers are, but basically 
the number of people who will fill out a whole form goes way down for every field in the form. And I think that that's exactly the point, right? That to someone like me who just tabs through, like, whatever, okay, I'm typing, and I tab, and I type, and I tab, and I type, and whatever. I could just, you know, I'm just using my pinky to hit the tab again. But for someone who scrolls down and clicks on every individual field, that's really, really, really annoying to have more and more and more fields. And especially when, uh, so I, I recently had to uh, to fill out a government form that they distribute via PDF, um, and you kind of like click around the PDF and fill in different things. And I'm like, oh, wow, so like I can't tab around. This is weird. This takes a long time. Hmm. Uh, so that, that was definitely an eye-opening experience. Yeah, I think these are all what we're talking about here is all different ways of stretching your experience to encompass, you know, parts of the experience of, of people that aren't like you and thus, you know, increasing your empathy and, and bringing their experience into your consciousness so that you can keep that in mind as you design and as you work going forward. I have a question if we're ready to switch topics. When you said you went to rabbinical school? Yeah, I did. I, I'm, I said rabbinical student. I was careful not to say rabbi because I am not one. Okay. Um, but, but I did spend some time uh, in a rabbinical studies program. Okay. So my in my limited knowledge of rabbinical school, it's sort of like my understanding of like you sort of become very adept at asking questions that complicate everything. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of take usually very good at like taking like a, something that appears simple and making it really complicated. A, would you say that's true? And B, if so, how has that impacted your work? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. There, I have actually a Trello board where I keep a list of like talk ideas that I'm working on. And that, that's been there for like a few years. And I'm just not sure what to say about it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of I, I, the way that I would actually describe it is less making things complicated, but more revealing the complexity in apparently simple things. It's actually not not that dissimilar to you know you get a a ticket from you know from from someone in product and they say okay so I want you to add this to the to the UI and you know I think about the implementation you say well what about this edge case and you know well actually for this segment of users that's not going to work properly and for this other segment of users maybe they shouldn't even have access to that so we have to think about access control and just taking this very very simple thing and saying well it should feel simple at the end but there's a whole lot of hidden complexity that we need to think about and yeah, that that's definitely a, a lot of it. And it's to me, I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely honed my mind to be very comfortable thinking in that way. It maybe makes me a little bit too quick to jump to like the well, what about this and what about that? You know, it probably causes me to massively overblow my estimates uh, sometimes <laughs> um, because I'm I'm anticipating all of the things that can and you know maybe will, but maybe just could, you know, or or maybe just won't uh, go wrong. Or, or, or at least reveal some hidden complexity. So yeah, that's that's definitely a point. But I, I think there's actually also another point in terms of, of rabbinical school and the way of thinking. This, you know, this definitely varies from school to school. But one of the things that I was always taught is uh, it is a form of Occam's razor. But essentially, the way that you try to understand, you know, a law is basically by looking at the edge cases and by defining the edge cases, you define the boundaries of the law. So once you have all these edge cases defined, you then have kind of a question as to as to how you're going to explain them, right? You could say basically the law is as I always understood it, and these edge cases are because of conflicting values or, or some kind of you know corner thing 
or you could say, well, once we have all these edge cases and we can kind of draw the pattern between them and see actually an overall simplification that will cover a lot of these edge cases and explain why why the boundary is is drawn in this particular way. Um, and, and I think that that actually also has helped me out in thinking about code because when I think about uh, a problem, I think about the edge cases, right? So I'm sort of also pushed at the same time to think about what is the simplification that will cover a lot of these edge cases, right? What are these edge cases really getting at? And how do I have to rethink the system as a whole in light of these edge cases, right? Is it is it going to be easier to just program the edge cases into the system or to modify the system to more naturally accommodate the edge cases? So I don't know if that made sense uh, <laughs> to you know someone who has not gone through that, that particular training, but that's probably the best way I would describe it in, in fairly general terms. Yeah, definitely. Makes lot, yeah, makes a lot of sense because like the happy path the the things that aren't edge cases don't require a lot of thought because they're the the straightforward thing you just go do it um versus the edge cases like you're saying they sort of define a boundary around what it is you're talking about whether it's functionality or or some other edict and and I like thinking about it that way because they're the intersections between where the change or the the idea or as you're saying the law intersects with other domains whatever those might be. And I like thinking about it that way. So when we were discussing topics earlier, you mentioned that you're currently working on defining the corporate values for the the company that you're working on. And that's a very rich topic. Certainly I've been through a similar process at the team level recently. So I'm, I'm curious to what your experience has been with that and what you think the benefits are. Yeah, so company values are definitely a complex topic. Much every company that's out there has some set of values, but um, there, there's there's one company that had a lovely sounding list of values. So I'm going to tell you the values. I'm going to mention the company, and I think it'll be pretty clear why company values are often viewed with a certain degree of skepticism, and rightly so. Uh, so the values that this particular company had were communication, respect, integrity, and excellence. The company in question was Enron, and this was their statement of values in their 2000 annual report. So obviously, you know, it's this is a fraught topic, and it's absolutely possible to have a bunch of values that you put on paper because they sound nice, but then maybe they don't actually work, or people don't apply them in their work because the incentives are all set up for them to act exactly in contradiction to the values. So I kind of want to think a little bit about, you know, or, or think aloud uh, with all of you about what is the purpose of company values and how do we basically give them teeth so that they can actually be meaningful. And then, you know, it, kind of in light of that, so it's worth also thinking, I think, about the, the process, how we get there to the right set of company values um, and when's the right time to actually do that, to actually have that process. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are some you know, people who would say, oh, day one, you should have a clear set of corporate values. I'm not so sure, but, you know, we can uh, we can discuss that as well. So that's sort of the setting the stage for the whole conversation, I would say. So in, in terms of the, the purpose of company values, I think that's kind of maybe the, the most important question because everything else should naturally follow from that, right? Like as we were talking about just a minute ago, right, from the definition step all the rules in the edge cases. So to me, it's like, what is the goal of these things? Why, why do companies have them? Again, the answer could be they happen to sound nice and they're just marketing material and whatever, but hopefully they should be more than that. And to me, it, it really does matter a lot because just speaking about my personal experience with them, so the first company that I worked with in tech did not have a set of values. 
And they recognized that that was a problem. At some point, they did develop a set of corporate values, but the process that they followed basically led to a bunch of pretty, I would say, bland values. And I can I can say that because I don't work for them anymore. <laughs> um, and I think that they're a lovely and wonderful company, by the way, and they're doing amazing work, and the people there are, are fantastic. But just the values that were chosen, I, I found them kind of generic and uninspiring. When I moved to my current company, so again, there, were, there was no listed set of corporate values. I, I really bothered the CEO about that a lot, actually. <laughs> and basically, I don't know if it was, I, it probably wasn't just because of me. I mean, it's a it's a conversation that they were having among upper management for some time. But uh, we recently had our annual gathering, and that was one of the big things that we did was sort of kickstart this process of defining our values as a company. And after everyone kind of had our input, there was, there's a smaller group, including me, that's that's now jumping in, and we're trying to sort of gather all this input together and figure out what are the common threads and what actually defines us as a company and, and what are our values. So it's something that I have, I, I, I care a lot about it. I have a lot of thoughts about it, I guess I would say. Um, I want to make sure that I'm giving room for other people's thoughts because I think it's going to be more fun if, if we all have something to uh, to throw in about it. But that that's kind of where I'm coming from on this in terms of my, my personal history and just seeing how values can be, I mean, they, they can be non-existent and, you know, what happens when there are no values, what are values supposed to contribute, what do you kind of feel is missing, and what's the right way to get there? Because I think I've seen maybe not the right way to get there, which is basically gather all the managers into a room and figure out what generic values they can all agree on. But I, I think that there are kind of better ways to get there. And uh, I'd be interested to hear, you know, not just, not just my own thoughts, but what you all have to say about it. Uh, so last year, I went through a process of getting our team, which is about 25 people to decide on what the team values were, because we were going to use these as part of our interviewing rubric, basically as a way of a defining for ourselves, what our values were, but also for when we're evaluating people, like what things are we going to evaluate them on? So we can say, you know, we have value X, you know, tell me about a time where, you know, you were able to demonstrate that value. And I like that because, there's no wrong answer to that as an interview question. And it allows the person to come up with, you know, how, what they think a good demonstration of that value is. And then you can sort of evaluate like how they think that that would play out versus whether they guess the magic answer to your, your tricky interview question. Uh, so that was sort of the impetus behind that. But, and that process has been rolled out to the whole company. Uh, but the process, basically we had our, our team, offsite and use that time to brainstorm values and have the team collectively come up with them, which I like a lot better. And I think goes to your point a little bit about like, if there's a point too early in a company to do that, like if it's just two co-founders, you could probably do that, but it's probably not necessary at that point. Cause ideally you're so closely on the same page that you don't need to write that stuff down. But at some point enough people are going to be added that you need to proactively create the culture versus just letting it happen however it happens. I agree with that. And I also think that like coming back and like revisiting them is like a big part of that. Like my team, my company did a similar thing at an offsite and wrote our original core values maybe like a year and a half ago when there were maybe 10 of us at the company. And then now there's like 30 of us at the company and we did like a refresh on them where we had a similar discussion maybe like six months ago or so. And like, I think it's kind of interesting to see the original list is not the same as the new list, but like you can tell that 
I think you can tell that it was like the same group of people. Like some of them are the same, but I think even some of the values behind them are the same, but like we changed the way that we wanted to express them over time after like having used them, which was kind of interesting because like we didn't have the insight when we wrote them the first time to be like, this is the way this sentence that we're putting on this piece of paper is going to get wielded in the future. And then like we could see how it got wielded and then potentially like change the way we want to say it, even if the meaning is similar. And I think that that was really valuable. I'm really curious, Jamie, did you delete any values or was it more of like an edit and add? Because I've I've seen cases where companies uh, will add their values. I, I saw actually a really cool post from Buffer about how they added a value. There was sort of like a whole discussion in the company. First CEO sent out an email. He's like, yeah, I think we need this to be a value. And there was like feedback stayed and they kind of settled on uh, on on the final phrasing of the value and the examples and everything. There's like really great examples out there of saying like, okay, so our values are complete. We need to add something. But I'm really curious at what point like you delete a value. So is that something that happened in that uh that discussion? Yes, actually. Okay, so we had values in our original list that had to do with like what we were attempting to achieve as a company. Like our I work in agriculture and our original number one value was we help indoor growers succeed. And we ended up removing that one from our list of values, which is kind of like funny because it's not that like I don't think we like, I still think we would like to help our customers succeed, but there was like some consensus on like our core values are something about like the way we conduct ourselves within our company and like how we interact with each other. And we kind of like ended up making a distinction between like things we want to achieve as a company aren't the same as core values of like how we want to base our behavior And so we got rid of a couple that were kind of more like goal driven about like the success of our company. And we replaced some with like one of our original ones was we respect each other, which I think is like important, but it ended up changing into we foster an environment of respect and openness, which I think is another example of like, you can look at those two lists and be like, okay, both of these lists have something to do with this idea of respect that we think is valuable, but like there's meaning in the way that it got changed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree with that. One of the things that I tend to pay attention to about values is who is impacted by the value, who has to change their behavior because of the value. And it can be about just as maybe one example, right? So a lot of companies have values like grit, determination, uh, you know, work hard, uh, or, or some variant of that in maybe, you know, more inspiring terms, but basically something that comes down to that. And it's not people up on top who are, who are changing their behavior because of that, right? It's the frontline workers who are, you know, now being asked to basically make sacrifices for the sake of the company, right? That's not a value. That's a statement to the workers. It's a threat almost of, you know, you have to do this. And I, I think that, you know, respect each other is definitely impacts the individual workers, but it also, you know, obviously it's a good thing, right? It's something that you're doing it because it's good for, you know, for everybody else and it's good for you and other people respect you, right? It's good for everybody. It's not just good for, you know, somebody's wallet. 
But, you know, fostering an environment of respect, right, that puts a lot more pressure on the people who are more influential in the company to create a certain kind of environment and to uh, to make space. I mean, I think another example that I, I think about a lot is some companies will say, you know, the, the value is we challenge people, we ask questions, you know, things like that. And maybe it would be a better value to say we create an environment where it's safe to ask questions and where it's safe to challenge ideas and where it's safe to take risks. Don't push the individuals to take risks, push the company as a whole, push the higher ups to make it an, an environment where it is safe to take risks, right? So uh, a lot of the time, you know, you have to think about, again, this, this really goes back to what's the purpose of company values, right? Are they about how much we can squeeze from the individual workers or are they about creating a certain environment where really everybody can succeed and, uh, and everybody can feel comfortable? That's such a fantastic distinction for evaluating a set of values. I really, really like that. I have one example. I'm wondering if you can go too far with values. This is something I've heard anecdotally, and it may not even be true anymore, but I heard at least at one point that um, when you're working at Amazon, they have their like seven core values and every single project, initiative, activity, whatever that you do or propose has to have backing of one, like it has to roll up into one of these values. And I can see the point of like trying to keep the values top of mind and have them baked into the process, but that also feels somewhat draconian. So I'm wondering what everyone thinks about that. So I think this relates to one of the questions that I, that I brought up, right? Which is how do you give teeth to the values? And that, that obviously is a situation where you're really able to give a lot of power to those values because they impact your daily processes, right? So on, on one hand, good. On the other hand, as you said, right, that might be a bit too draconian. It might be a little bit too restrictive. Um, I think it's important to be open to the idea that our values should be really good, but maybe they're incomplete. Maybe they're missing something. Maybe they need some tweaks, right? Which goes back to exactly what Jamie was just talking about, about how, how the values should be open for discussion, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, like if you have a value of integrity, right, that probably shouldn't be open for, for discussion as to whether we should have integrity or not. There's a limit to it. But whether these are the values that best represent what we are and what we aspire to be should absolutely be, be up for debate, I think. And again, it's, it's a question of what's the right place and the right time and the right way to, to, to address it. Definitely, that was one of the things that made me a little bit uncomfortable in, in my last company about how, how the values happened is they were just sort of announced one day, as far as I recall. Um, and maybe I'm, you know, misremembering history, but basically they were decided in a closed room of, uh, of managers and VPs and stuff. And there was not necessarily a, a whole lot of involvement by individual workers. And I don't think that, look, if you have a gigantic company, right, you can't get everybody into a room and really be, you know, so effective at having a conversation, but there should be representation because first of all, that makes everyone feel like they're a little bit more involved. They're more represented, right? Uh, a representative government is still better than just, uh, you know, a, a monarchy, even if not everyone can actually cast a vote on every issue that comes up. Um, and I think it's the same thing with, with creating values that there should be representation. I think it also changes nature of the values, again, to represent not just what is good for somebody's wallet, what's going to make their, you know, the, the value of their shares go up, but also what's good for individual contributors, what's good for the people who are, uh, what, really what's, what's good for the, for the customers, what's fair to them, because very often it's, you know, the people who are actually interacting with customers who will care more about them than the people who are just kind of trying to make the, the, the company work like a well-oiled machine. Um, so I think who is creating the corporate values really does make a difference uh, in that regard as well. 
I feel like I drifted a little bit. <laughs> I, I also have a thought about John's question, which is that, like, I think we have had disagreements at my company about, like, are we using the values to in, a, in too heavy-handed a way? Um, and I think that there is still some disagreement, um, like, on my team where some people are like, I think it's really important to use the values like we use them in our peer feedback and we use them in like our hiring assessments and we use them in all these places. And there's been a lot of discussion about like, are we using them in too many places? Are we forcing our discussions into them too much? Some people think we are, some people think it's like an important structure, but actually we changed one of the values based on it where we were like, people were complaining like, Oh, well we use them in hiring and we're supposed to be able to like, I mean, it's kind of, John said earlier, it's great for interviews because you can ask questions in, like, the context of the values um, in a way that's helpful. But then we were getting into situations where people wanted to say, particularly with, like, technical hires, we would want to have, like, a discussion about, like, okay, well, I did some pair coding with this person and I have thoughts about their technical ability as, like, a programmer. And, like, there wasn't a core value that was, like, we value someone who's like really good at what they do as a programmer. And so it was almost like we couldn't talk about that, which is like an important thing. And so we used to have one about, I forget the exact wording, but it was about trust and constructive feedback. And we ended up changing the wording of it to, we trust each other to do our work with excellence, like purposefully. So that kind of like, is someone doing a good job at their job? could fall under one of our values in a more direct way, but still like focusing on, it's not just, are you doing a good job at your job? It's like, if I have something that I need to get done, do I feel like I can give it to you and trust you that it will get it done? And like, I don't have to micromanage and like, I don't want to be micromanaged. (laughs) And so it was kind of like an interesting we weren't like, we have to write a value to cover this thing that we think is important that's not currently covered. How do we do that? And that was kind of like coming at it from a different angle. But I think that like if you have a team and an environment and a community where you have made the space to talk about this stuff, then when disagreements about the values come up in that way, you've already made a space where like that's an okay thing to discuss. So I agree with you, Ariel. Like, you know, if someone's just telling you these are the values, then it can be much more of a burden to integrate them into your work. Whereas if there's open discussion about the values, you can say, okay, I, there are these things that I'm expected to integrate in my work, but I agree with them or at least feel like I can say something in a case where I don't necessarily perfectly agree with them. Yeah. I, I love how obvious it is how important the wording of the value is from your, the two examples that you gave today. They both are, for me, I felt like they were big improvements, but they also like point to how important the language is when you write these things down and that they're not just a list of like seven words that you think are important, respect, blah, 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 like empathy, like you could write these words down, but phrasing it in that way of like, we create an environment where blah, 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 like that is such an important distinction. I've seen a lot of like, in terms of how values are phrased, right? So 
there's different approaches, right? There's the approach of you just have like a word and then you have some kind of definition of the word, right? Or you have a short phrase, right? There's a lot of different ways of, of expressing them. Um, I've seen one company where they had, again, a, a word or a short phrase, I forget which, but then they had like a few concrete examples, like examples of how you might express this value, you know, breaking it down a little bit more. There's so many ways to express values and I don't think that there's a correct one necessarily, but it, it definitely has to be done with thought about how we want to use these values and how specific do we want to get because you don't want to be like saying exactly what each individual one means to the point of like well now we can't apply these broadly because there's supposed to be a, a fundamental core principle there that is widely applicable but at the same time you do want to give people a sense of what does it mean in terms of my day-to-day how should that change how i'm acting so i had two thoughts what would happen do you think if values were well, they were grassroots, like they came from the bottom up, which we've talked, we've shared examples already like that, where, you know, a team gets together and comes up with values, but also that a value had to be reflective of actual team behavior before it could be codified, right? So like, it, it seems to me that like, one of the issues is writing it down will hopefully make it so. And I wonder if like you flipped that and you said like, if something's important, go and do it on a small scale and then it can sort of bubble up to the institutional level and then we'll codify it. And now when it gets codified now, everyone needs to sort of work that into their framework of how they behave. But whether they're aspirational or not is is a, an important part of the definition. So this actually reflects a lot of my experience right now in terms of the discussions that we're having in our team about what should Cloudinary's values be. And we got, I don't know, 70 or so values that came from within the company from different people. And we had to figure out how do we group them and how do we analyze them and understand them and look for the for the big patterns and the things that, that don't really matter here. And it was very clear that some of them are these are things that we do and some of them are things that we hope to do and there were some where we said well we think this is a thing that we do are we fooling ourselves and that was actually one of the more interesting parts of the the discussion where we were trying to sort of bring examples of like do we live this value do we not live this value can we really claim it's part of our our dna when maybe we don't live this way right now Uh, and it was a really cool discussion i think because it was sort of forced us to be a little bit honest with ourselves and i think it revealed certainly to me, certain things about um, about my own organization where, like, I thought things were great. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not as great as I thought. And I, I don't want to, like, say negative things about my company, not just because I work there, but because it actually is an awesome place. But, like, because, you know, everyone has has issues and that's fine. And, and the point is that I think about them and working on them. But it was really interesting to hear some of the feedback from people from different teams and different parts of the company, different countries, uh, actually and hear what their feedback was and how they perceived how much we do or don't have a value. And I think that's actually a, a really valuable input into, into the discussion of what the value should be. Yeah, that's fantastic. Like, I think, as you were saying, if you can build the process of, of creating the values in such a way, much like it sounds like what you did, Jamie, as well, that you can bring up the voices of the people who probably are on the margins, who don't have the institutional power, you know, like increase their ability to say, this is not something that I've experienced at this company. That's an an incredibly powerful venue for affecting change. And for, again, like bringing awareness of 
a problem that's pushed away to the edges that, that most of the, the people in power aren't aware of and allowing that to start like be one of the, the catalysts for change. That's really just blowing my mind right now. I think another input into the question of aspirational values and what is their value might be a really great blog post that I read from Rich Armstrong about uh, basically the Fall Creek values. And their goal is actually radically different from most values uh, that, that I've heard. Right. The goal is less about defining, you know, who we are and what we strive for and all that. It's it's more about basically answering questions that you might encounter on a daily basis. You know, one of their values is we don't want your money if you're not amazingly happy, right? Which if someone now, let's say you have a customer service representative who's dealing with a customer and they have to decide, should I give them, you know, a free month or not? It's very obvious what the answer is, right? We don't want your money if you're not amazingly happy. So that gives them basically the freedom to give into the customer a little more than they might, you know, naturally uh, do. There's another one that everyone is available to everyone which basically means that if you're debating, should I ask somebody a question or not? Well, now the values literally give you permission to go ahead and ask the person that question, even if they're, you know, right at the top of the food chain, because everyone is available to everyone. And, you know, if they make themselves not available, well, now they're violating a core value. So they're, they're really aimed at, um, I, I don't know, frankly, if this is how things were before they were the values or not, but the goal was to basically define behavior and, help people basically answer questions on a, on a day-to-day basis as to how should I go about doing my work. Timing-wise, we are just over an hour now, so this could be a good time to move into reflections unless there were other topics that we wanted to get in first. There is a question, and I, I'm curious if it's, you know, how, how much we should talk about this, but again, the question of what stage should a company put its values into writing? To me, that's actually a really interesting question, and it's something that I've debated with with other people about. As to when is the right time, how established should the company be? I think that companies put their values into writing too late. They kind of err on the on the side of doing it too late. And that can have, I think, catastrophic consequences on the culture that develops. Because basically the trigger to put together values is usually something like, oh, we see that you know certain values and the the rank and file are sometimes, you know, or maybe maybe you know even higher ups are not necessarily living those values. And now we should put into writing as kind of a, you know, trying to plug the dam, basically trying to, to prevent these sort of breaches of conduct and ensure that, that things are passed on. But it's, that's not necessarily the right time to do it, right? Maybe it's better to do it a little bit, uh, a little bit earlier. So I can say that I personally perceive kind of a spectrum of like, there's a time when the company is definitely too small. Uh, John, as you said earlier, we don't want to define the values when there's just so few people that we, we all kind of understand each other and we, we know how we want each other to, to act. But there does come a point where it becomes a little bit more ambiguous. And I think there is really a point where, you know, you should still do it, but it's it's kind of too late. And to me, I think the time that it's too late is around when you hit Dunbar's number. So Dunbar's number is, uh, I think, 150, give or take, right? It's basically the, the number of meaningful relationships that a person can have. And so when the company basically reaches that point, that's when you usually start to feel like, oh, I don't really know everybody anymore. And I don't, I can't really maintain relationships with everybody in the company anymore. And that's, you know, that's kind of a, a critical moment where channels of communications start to break down. A lot of startups actually fail specifically at that point 
because they fail to transition in terms of their communication patterns to deal with a large organization. Um, so to me, that's kind of like the last possible time that you can do it and have it be effective. But again, maybe there's time that's, you know, that's earlier that it would still be even, even healthier to do so. What you just said, like, instead of having like an answer, it made me think of like a question. And the question is like, well, what do you do if you're past that point? Like, I feel like you kind of said like, well, it's better to do it maybe than not do it. But like too late is kind of harsh. Like, what would be your advice if you're like, oh, we're past this point, but like we want to try and implement something? Yeah. Okay. So with my limited experience and my limited perspective, I, I think the best thing I can say is, look, better late than never, but expect more bumps in the road in terms of adoption of the values. You might push a little bit harder. Um, again, as we've discussed, there's a point where it's pushing too much, but I think you might have to do a lot more in order to get people to really remember the values, to pick up the values, to to live the values. There are still things that you can do. I mean, my previous company had like an award give out at the uh, like monthly or bi-monthly staff meetings where basically they would they would say you can nominate somebody for living one of the values you have to identify which value that they were uh, living and something you know extraordinary that they did that really exemplify one of those values and they would get like a monetary award and like a certificate and stuff which was you know that, that's one way to do it but you know just just looking for for it's like you know look i think that the bigger problem is not the adoption because the adoption strategy is probably more or less the same, whatever the size of the company, right? It's about looking for ways to get teeth without sort of uh, forcing people's hands too much, um, making sure that your values, values are flexible, stuff like that, um, that we've already kind of gone over. But what might happen until those values are really properly propagated and adopted is a little bit more dangerous, right? There, there is a point where you really can't rely on culture to spread by itself. And uh, it needs to take a much more active role in pushing certain culture. And it's just it's just going to be a lot harder. You're going to have to invest a lot more. And, and the best advice is before you hit that point, you know, again, maybe too late is too much of a or, or too strong a statement, but it's going to be a whole lot harder if you wait too long. This is absolutely an example of a stitch in time saves nine. That makes sense to me. Anybody else have experiences on that in terms of the what stage question? That would be uh, maybe enlightening. Okay. I work in a 30-person company, and it's, like, by far the biggest company I've ever worked at. So, like, really? So, working at a company with more than 30, and that's including, like, our sales team and everything. So, like, working at a company with more than, like, 10 engineers is just a huge gap in my experience. <laughs> so, in your size companies, because, again, I've, I think the smallest company I worked at, certainly in tech, is a kind of 120 or above. So, what do you feel about, like, the size that you've hit, that this was a time that we really needed to get the values in place? My experience is that we did it around 12 people was the first time we did a core value set. And like I mentioned, it has evolved since then, but I think it was really great. Like we're in kind of an awkward teenage phase of being a startup right now. And I think like, we'll see, I see people get frustrated and like I get frustrated, but I'm like, of course we're having these kind of, scaling issues because this is the time in the life of a startup when these scaling issues happen. And like going into this kind of awkward teenage phase, already having something that we've like had, had good feelings about was kind of comforting because like we have had culture change because of like, again, of course you do from going from two engineers to, you know, a 15 person product team. And so it's been kind of comforting as someone like living through that to be like, there are changes at my company, 
but like we're not doing them without putting any thought into it. It's like comforting that people are thinking about and worried about these things. We've changed the core values, as I've mentioned. I think it was for the better, but it was great that we had something to like base them on and just knowing that like, I think the worst thing that you can do to your culture is just like ignore it and see what happens. (laughs) And so it's been like, even at times when it's been difficult, I'm glad that we're not just like ignoring it and seeing what happens. So that has been a positive for me at our size. I started at my company when we were 30 and now we're over 500 uh, and only have done the values in the last year, year and a half or so. And I think that was probably too late. Like I think it, it hasn't been like, I haven't noticed like a lot of problems with the rollout or anything like that. But again, it was, you know, I think a couple of years ago, you know, we could have done a lot with that and we didn't. Do you think that the culture that your company developed in the meantime has been uh, negatively affected in certain ways by not having those values already set out? Possibly. It's hard to know, really, because, you know, our team is somewhat isolated being the engineering department and and hasn't grown. You know, we've grown from, you know, five to 20 and the rest of the company has just exploded in size. So I don't know how it's rolled out in other areas. It's hard to predict whether that would have been helpful or not earlier on, although uh, something closely related to values are diversity and inclusion. And it was last year that we started our, you know, major diversity inclusion efforts, which is definitely way too late to start those efforts. <laughs> That's, you know, very clear cut. You know, it should have been there from the beginning. Sounds like the lesson is if you don't state your values, you might forget them sometimes. Yeah. So this discussion reminds me a little bit of um, when we had April Wenzel on the show in episode 94, and she talked about having personal values and doing like weekly retrospectives on how you've lived up to those values. And I thought that was a really interesting idea, not only from just having a value so explicitly defined for yourself, like most people just sort of they're internal and they just operate, but actually writing them down and saying, this is what you're going to adhere to. But then also increasing the feedback loop of saying, this situation, yes, it was great. I was right on what I wanted to be doing there. This one, not so much. And keeping that feedback in, I think, makes adhering to, you know, the values that you really want to espouse a really interesting idea. So I just wanted to throw that out. That's really interesting to me because I'm thinking about what I mentioned earlier, where the in the process of creating the values, there's been some introspection as to are these really the values that we're living? And there's no reason that that has to stop once you have the values, you know, set in stone and thrown on your career page and printed on a big poster in your office, that can happen on a very consistent basis. And I've seen values used as kind of the framework in which to judge employee performance. I think that might go a little too far sometimes because the the values you want for a community are not necessarily the same as the values you want for any individual. But I like the idea of having regular moments of thinking about are we living up to our values? These values will still reflect, you know, who we are, right? And that that could be that could be something that you build into, you know, if your if your company has big offsites, right? That's something that could be part of that. If not, then something to bring up if there are again some kind of regular big meeting. And if not, then maybe on the individual team level to have regular points every couple of months, maybe where you uh, where you bring that up as just a topic of conversation. It can be more regular than that, but there should be some kind of regular. A moment in time 
where you're pausing and thinking about that. So now's the time on the show when we do reflections, which are each of us talking about the the things from this conversation that really struck with us, the things that you know blew our minds, or that the ideas that we're going to take with us into the rest of our day or week or life. I can get started with that. I think the really great idea for me uh, from this discussion has been using the process of establishing and or revising values as a way of pulling in the experience of the marginalized people, however they're marginalized in the company, um, into the discussion to allow them to, you know, really feedback like the actual like behavior of the company as a group um, into itself so that it has an accurate idea of what what's going on, what values are being demonstrated, which ones aren't being demonstrated and in what way. So that, you know, again, feedback is, is one of those key biological activities that, that helps an organism stay healthy. So I think like using that as an opportunity. And like you said, Ariel, just now doing that at a regular basis, rather than say every decade, when you decide you need new <laughs> values, probably pretty important. And also using like thinking about the language of them very specifically, as Jamie was saying, um, so that they target like thinking about who they affect, whether it's group behaviors or people with no power or people with power or, you know, like thinking about all those dynamics in the phrasing of the goal, I think is important. So like, these are all things that I'm going to be thinking about quite a bit in the future. My thought was similar to that. I think you mentioned it a little bit, but very specifically what was said about like thinking about who your values put pressure on because I think about this kind of thing on like a more general level quite a lot, like the fallacy of personal responsibility, which I could talk about for a million years, but I won't in my reflection. Um, but I guess it was just surprising to me that I hadn't really thought about it in that kind of very explicit way about values and like what people do we want to feel like they need to change something or adapt in some way or like set some sort of model of behavior and like who are we putting that burden of responsibility on and is that fair I think is something that like I wasn't thinking about explicitly when I was hoping to write our values I think that I'm hopeful that we did a relatively good job with it anyway, but I wish that it was something that I was being more intentional about at the time. And it's something that I would like to be more intentional about going forward. I've been thinking about the balance between whether values should be aspirational and, you know, they're put in place so they can shape and change company behavior, or should they be a reflection of things that people in the company are already doing, they have already internalized. And yeah, I'd sort of go back and forth about like, which they should be to what extent, you know, what's the right balance. I'm thinking about how that can be a dynamic where, you know, you can set values that create a specific culture that can then be conducive to other values coming forth. Like, so it's just opening my eyes how complex that system can be. I'm, I'm allowed to have two reflections, right? So one reflection actually is, is in response to Jacob's reflection, uh, which is which is cool. I think that what you're saying now sort of made me realize that the questions that we asked are interrelated. So 
in terms of what's the right stage to put values into writing and should values be aspirational or just reflective of what the company is, I think that that actually really is impacted uh, one by the other. So if you have a company that's really well established, that has tons of people, and it's really hard to move the rudder at, at that point, an aspirational value might not be that effective. Whereas if you have a, a small, more dynamic organization that's able to, to pivot much more easily um, and that's able to, to change things without impacting you know, tons of people and encountering as much resistance, it might be a lot easier and more effective to have those aspirational values. So maybe that is also a factor that should kind of really impact both questions, right? Of you know, how, how much should values be aspirational and when should we do them? Do we want to have more aspirational values or do we want just kind of reflect values? And because um, it's, it's really hard to have aspirational values when, you're, when your organization is just, is just huge. Uh, maybe for a smaller team within the organization, you could have those aspirational values, but it's really, really hard to have deep and fundamental change within a giant organization. That's kind of one thing, just sort of piecing things together that we spoke about. The other thing that I found really interesting to contemplate that I'm going to have to think about more is, so I came into this conversation thinking a lot about how do you give teeth to values? How do you make sure that your values actually mean something to the organization? They're not just something that you put up on a poster or on a website and then forget about. But there really is a point of giving too much teeth to the values. And it's, it's probably made worse when the values are really set in stone and not open to, to discussion and revision. So um, there's probably a balance to be found in terms of, of how much uh, weight should the values carry. And again, I, I think it's easier to give them more weight if they're also at the same time open for discussion and open for revision because that gives you the opportunity to respond to the weight of the value by saying, well, maybe let's, let's reconsider the value. I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to the, to the board of values, you know, whatever you want to call it. But if, if I can change it, then, then maybe it's not as, as much of a pressure situation when, uh, when the values seem to be, you know, restricting me too much. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Ariel. This was an absolutely amazing discussion. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this and I learned a lot along the way. 